Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. I'm so excited to talk with guests who highlight the wide array of skills that librarians offer. My guests are changing the paradigm on how we see librarians and are helping us recognize the valuable skills that we bring to the table. Our skills are valuable in any setting and my guests are proof of that. My guest today is Ashley Corin, Women's History Content and Interpretation Curator at the National Portrait Gallery. She is also Acting Head of Education, Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative. She has taught special collections and young adult courses at the University of Maryland College of Information Studies. Ashley, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Thanks for having me, Laureen. Tell us about your work and what kind of projects you take on. Sure. So right now I'm juggling two different jobs, which I'm sure mm -hmm. many of your listeners have experience with. Uh, that's the thing about working in glam world. They uh, <laughs> overload you <laughs> with jobs <laughs> that, that you're capable. Um, so I do tons of things at the Smithsonian, but the bulk of my work is um, developing, evaluating, um, and delivering the American Women's History Initiative. I'll refer to it as AWHI um, during our chat, but I pretty much um, deliver their goals through cultivating experiences, both in person and mostly virtually now. Um, I develop activities, programs, and digital products for K through 12 teachers and college students um, across all subject areas. So I'm pretty much a generalist when it comes to women's history, because I kind of have to be um, like many librarians, right? Where, where many mm -hmm. of us are generalists. Um, as you mentioned, I'm also the women's history content and interpretation curator for the portrait gallery and in that job. Um, it's pretty much the same thing, but sort of focused on the history of portraiture in America. And it's really about connecting the museum's various audiences um, with sort of American history through these objects. So, And I saw that you were in, um, I haven't listened to it yet, but you were, you participated in a podcast about a project that you worked on. That yes, looks really yes. interesting. I know. I so as you as I'm sure you you understand, podcasting is such a fabulous way to convey information. One in a really shorter format, but in a really mm -hmm. dynamic format. I mean, it's a really cool way to do storytelling in a lot of ways. So the Smithsonian has a podcast called Side Door, and I recently had the pleasure of both pitching and then helping them produce an episode on. Um, a local DC uh, black woman inventor um, who in the 1950s um, actually uh, got a patent for an adjustable sanitary belt. And one of the things I love about my job and also, you know, sort of using this format of podcasting is that we really get to talk about stories that people don't know, but we also get to reframe what stories get told. I mean, here's a woman who had five patents like five patents during her lifetime, but she never made any money off of it. She's not in really any history books, but I mean, here's someone whose story is just as compelling as someone who was the first to do something, right? Or someone who broke the glass ceiling. So the thing that I love most about my job is that I get to use my library skills like research, right? That's a huge part of my job is actually knowing how to research and it blows my mind um, because before I started my job, I didn't realize how equipped I was to do it simply because of the research skills that I developed as a librarian archivist. So, and I will link um, in the show notes to that episode oh, that you're interviewed you. on. It's one of the oh, things I'm the most proudest of. So, thank you. 
you're welcome. I'm excited. I, like I said, I booked, I bookmarked it. I haven't listened to it yet, but I bookmarked it because it looks really good right up my alley, like yeah. things I like to hear about. Um, and sort of along those lines about research, what traditional, I like to use air quotes on my podcast, yeah. <laughs> what traditional library skills have you used in your current role? Yeah. So like I said, it's so funny. I mean, a lot of the work that I do is stuff that I was doing as a librarian. I mean, now I'm a curator, I guess is the, is the right term, but I'm mostly <laughs> a museum interpreter. But honestly, right, research and discovery, researching the history of women in America or the history of women in portraiture, doing primary source research, primary source research to be able to find content to develop for videos, teacher programs, um, lesson plans. Um, you know, that's a big part of my work. Discovery, helping people find things, right? We have people all the time who email us and say, hey, I'm doing this. I'm doing this section on the civil rights movement. Do you have any materials that are of use? And I'm like, that's literally what I was doing <laughs> as a librarian, right? Sharing resources to different educators or information seekers um, to help them in their own work. But I think, you know, information literacy is a huge part of my job, even though it's not called information literacy, right? They refer to it either as visual literacy or, um, you know, we talk a lot about close looking with art objects and understanding art objects. That's information literacy as far as I'm concerned, right? <laughs> like it's, a, it's the same thing, thinking about art as information. What, what can art tell us? What can mm -hmm. art explain to us? What we can learn from art? It's the same thing with, with information literacy. I love that. It's just I called something else. <laughs> but it's, it's the same thing. Hmm? Yeah, oh, it's the same. You're exactly. Right. I never thought of it in that way that art, I never thought of it in that way. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, a big part of it is, you know, figuring out how can art, especially in the museum that I work with, how can art help us understand the past and the present, but also the future. And that's literally the same thing when I'm teaching someone how to go through databases to find mm -hmm. content for the research papers, right? Yes. It's very similar. It's a very, very similar thing. Um, and then also thinking about cataloging. And this is something where I think people, some people in the museum field really don't see the correlation between library catalogers and people who create metadata for museum collections. So a part of my work is also sort of understanding how metadata gets created at the museum. Because one, if my job is about helping people find things, I have to understand what keywords are being used to describe our collections. Mm -hmm. But I also need to understand, right, thinking about how bias might play a role and how objects are described and labeled in our collection and how to communicate mm -hmm. that with our audiences, but also having conversations with my colleagues across Smithsonian, right? Many of them are sort of talking about um, the evolution of language and how do we account for the evolution of language when talking about gender or when talking about, you know, labeling or describing museum objects. That's the same conversations that catalogers are having right now when it comes to describing and cataloging books and other materials. There's so many sort of different traditional library skills um, that I have developed uh, over time that have been immensely and will continue to be immensely useful at my time with the Smithsonian. And sort of along those lines also, you've mentioned a little bit, but how do your library skills and education fit into a museum specific setting? And how do you add value to the Smithsonian because of your library skills and education? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's so funny. I just, I find myself sometimes 
having to explain my background to others because when they hear the word librarian or when they hear the word archivist, it's really hard for people in other disciplines to understand one, what we're actually trained to do. People have very little clue what librarians are trained to do. They really do think it's just about like hoarding and pushing books mm -hmm. <laughs> to the general mm -hmm. population. Um, and I'm also coming from academia. So like I am a scholar, I am a researcher um, in addition to everything else. Um, and so I think librarians and archivists are primed to be in the museum field, like literally primed to be in the museum field. Um, I think we have the skills when thinking about um, museum objects and how to describe them. I think that we are educators. People forget that librarians are also educators, right? We literally help, we literally encourage people to not just consume information and find information, but to evaluate information. And that is very yes, yes. important in a museum field is you know helping people evaluate the objects um that they're the museum objects that they're looking at i also think that like i said our background in research is essential for any korean museums being able to do research and being able to do research really quickly on the fly um, is incredibly important being able to do different types of research thinking about research in the humanities research in social sciences research in the sciences right like because of my background and because of my contact with different, you know, academic departments, I know some of these databases already. I know about, you know, triple IE. Um, sorry, I'm messing that up, but the engineering databases, mm -hmm. right? I'm already familiar mm -hmm. with tons of different types of databases that my colleagues are using at the Smithsonian. I don't need, like, I know which databases to use or which databases to recommend. Um, and I think that's really important is understanding sort of the different disciplines and fields um, and being able to sort of switch, right? Because we're generalists being able to switch um, and, and provide support to those different sort of colleagues and teams. Um, I also think librarians are very front-facing, right? Many of our jobs are front-facing. We are the first people visitors see when we enter the museum. How is that any different from a tour guide? How is it any mm -hmm. different from being um, an educator or, you know, a docent or um, the work that I do as an educator and interpreter? A lot of that stuff's very similar, right? Being able to make people feel comfortable in a space, feel like they're welcome in a space and being able to help them sort of have the experience that they'd like to have in a museum space. A lot of that work I did as a librarian and having those customer service skills are essential <laughs> when dealing with the public. Yes. So I mean, there's so many different ways <laughs> that the work that librarians are already doing have already set them up to be able to pursue careers in, in the museum field. Yeah, I started this podcast to get the word out outside of libraries about our leadership, our transferable skills, but exactly. you're so right. They, people don't even know what we do in the library. Exactly. I think it's all about books and shelving books and, and like telling people to be quiet. So yeah. <laughs> we don't even know like what we do, you know, and I, I've always said that, you know, when you tell someone you're a public library director, it should imply a skill set. Exactly. But it doesn't. Because exactly. people don't understand libraries are organizations like businesses that have everything a business, like positions that a business has. So I'm so glad you said that, that they yeah. don't even know what we do in the library, let alone exactly. that our skills can transfer to another industry. 
And, you know, librarians work with students. They work with all different types of populations, right? Um, when I worked at University of Maryland Special Collections, we had genealogists, right, come in. We had, we had people from the community come in. And libraries have displays and exhibits too. So, I mean, there's so many correlations between the work that's being done in any kind of library, but also the same work that's being done at a place like the Smithsonian. It's just not as visible, I guess, um, to the greater public, but it should be um, because we're doing a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of work that's similar. What suggestions do you have for librarians who want to move into a position like yours? I think a, a great, thing to do would be, so when I was looking to switch, um, I was leaving academia and wanted something a little bit different. And I sort of looked at different job positions and I looked at my CV and I sort of compared and contrast and like, how can I translate the work that I've done to sort of these different job descriptions? And I was like trying to sort of play around with my CV because, you know, maybe maybe your background is research services, but research services can be translated into something else with research, right? So it doesn't, so like there are ways to sort of play around with your background because maybe um, you've been teaching information literacy, but that's education, but you turn that into education. There are different ways that we can sort of translate our skills by using other words and other keywords and other types of language um, to communicate what we've been doing to different audiences. And I think that that's incredibly important is being able to sort of translate what you've done in the library field to appeal um, to different audiences. Getting away from the library lingo. Yes, exactly. It's important. Exactly. When you've managed people, what kind of manager are you? So it's <laughs> a great question. She laughs. Um, <laughs> So I'm uh, so one of I had the pleasure actually of when I was working at West Virginia University in the libraries I had the pleasure of actually working in the dean's office for about a year and a half and that was a fabulous experience getting to sort of see how the sausage gets made in a lot of ways. But a big thing that I learned was the importance of mentoring when you are a supervisor. And so now I have um, I have an education assistant and then I also have an intern that works with me and a big part of my job is yes, we have our tasks that we need to get done, but it's also really important for me, for the people who work under me to obtain the experiences and skills that will help them become better workers or better people. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much of, you know, we have all sorts of meetings and lectures and programs. If you wanna to go to any of those things on the clock because they're gonna help you like figure out what you wanna be or, or it'll help you the job, go, right? My, big, my whole big thing is making sure that they are the people who they want to be and providing the resources, introducing them to other colleagues across the Smithsonian, scheduling sort of one-on-ones um, with them or introductions. I think that's incredibly important for a supervisor to be able to both uplift um, but also support their supervisees' professional development. Um, but like I said, not just as professionals, but also as people, right? Exposing them to new ideas and new ways of approaching the work. And sometimes that you can get that internally. And sometimes it has to happen from outside of the institution. So that's a really big part um, of what I'm excited about. I also think it's really important to leverage my supervisees' strengths. So as a leader, 
I am the leader, but I am not good at everything. I'm not, there are certain things that I am just not great at. And so it's important to, if my colleagues have the skills, like if someone has like graphic design skills that I don't have, it's important for me to leverage that. I don't, I'm not supposed to be doing everything as the person leading and neither are my supervisees, but if there are ways that we can create projects where I can sort of leverage their strengths, I can amplify their strengths, um, but also showcase their strengths to a, to a bigger audience. I think that's incredibly important. And like I said, it's important for me for, to communicate that I am not the end all be all for decision-making too as well. Um, we all have a shared vision. We have shared ideals as a team. And luckily the two people that work under me know me very well. Um, and so decision-making is more about it's a mix of different things. So when we create decisions, yes, I am the leader, but it's also think, having conversations together about capacity, having conversations about sustainability, but then also having conversations, is, is this cool? Like, is this a cool thing for us to do? And I really value having that input for my supervisees because maybe I might be missing something because I'm super gung-ho. There've been moments where there've been, some, I've been super gung-ho about something and someone will be like, hey, do you remember that thing that we like, like there's that thing that you're forgetting about right now. I need you to remember that thing, Ashley, cause you're, you're, you're getting a little ahead of yourself. And I appreciate that from the people that I work with. So. And to go back to something you said a little bit ago, anything you do helps you as a librarian. Exactly. Every talk you attend, every play you attend, every game, every TV, like everything helps you because that's, you need all that information. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think it's good to be, have that supported on your, on your work time because exactly. it all helps you. Exactly. And it costs money. Some of these things cost money. And so I don't mm -hmm. want, I'm sorry, like people should not, if, if you can make it work, people should not have to pay extra <laughs> to learn how to be more sufficient in their job. They should have to pay extra money, pay their own way to be able to do things like that, right? Like we should create pathways to support our colleagues and to support our supervisees. And luckily I work for an institution that can allow for that. Um, I know not everybody does, but if I have the privilege of doing so, I will take advantage of that for both myself and my employees. Um, because at the end of the day, as much as I would love for someone to stay with me forever and ever and ever until, you know, we both perish, if there's a better opportunity for them, I want them to pursue it, but I want them to be prepared for it, not just to pursue it, but to be prepared. And if I have any way of helping them be more prepared, so be it. Yeah, I agree. We, we shouldn't be limited by budget on no. our learning. Speaking of budgets. For librarians who work with budgets or want to move into a position with budget responsibility, what suggestions can you give us on managing a budget? So I don't manage the budget, but I have a budget currently. So because I'm a part of a larger team, we have sort of one shared budget. Um, and this is and this is so funny. This is actually my first year sort of uh, maintaining and sustaining a budget. And one one of the big things that I learned was it's so important to, because we sort of start our budget planning um, over the summer and then by the fall, our fiscal year starts. So one of the things that's so important, especially given that, you know, last month was Women's History Month, which is my, which is the busiest month for me out of the entire mm -hmm. year, um, is to 
make sure that there's um, resources left for a surprise or for something that just comes up. I think it's so important. So for instance, um, I ended up doing uh, school visits um, last month with a school in DC. It's one of my, with one of my favorite um, educators. And um, I was having the students create uh, different artworks inspired by the famous painter Alma Thomas. So I was teaching them about Alma Thomas and I had them create these uh, works of art inspired by her. And I needed art supplies. And this was just a random thing that just came up at the last minute. But any opportunity that I have to go into schools, particularly now, sort of in, we're in this sort of weird hybrid space um, to mm -hmm. be able to do in-school visits, I cherish every opportunity, to, but I needed money to buy art supplies because I wanted to make sure that the teachers and the students did not have to worry about pens, paper, pencils, anything. And so thankfully I had set money aside for like a rainy day just because and was able to ensure that I had the funds to support sort of this programming. So it's incredibly important to have like just, just a little bit of some, some, you know, like just in mm -hmm. case something comes up or a cool idea happens. I meet mm -hmm. fascinating people all the time from different nonprofits and museums. And sometimes just like this gangbusters idea comes up for this program. Um, like for instance, we're working on um, uh, a possible program um, on women veterans for this fall. And sometimes you just meet people and you gotta have, <laughs> you just gotta be ready, right? Mm -hmm. For when for when lightning strikes. And so that's sort of the big thing that I learned is that, you know, it's it's important to plan, but you can't plan everything. And having a budget that allows for you to be a little bit flexible, depending on sort of what's happening at the time is really important. I'm so glad you said that because we plan so far ahead, especially in like public or academic libraries. If you have a newsletter, you yep. have to get the room and you plan so far ahead. You don't want to lose any money that you can't be nimble. If something comes up a couple weeks or a couple months before the end of the budget, you're like, you know, maybe in a year we can do it, but we already spent all exactly. our money. So it's always that that's such a great idea to save some because you always can spend it on something. Exactly. But to exactly. save it in case a really great opportunity comes up toward the end of the budget year. I like that. What kind of goals do you have in your position? Oh my goodness. That's what that's, you can tell us. Yeah, that's just a really fabulous question. Um, you know, this is my, so I've, so as you, as I'm sure as you know, leadership can happen in any position. You don't necessarily have to be the director or the head to be a mm -hmm. leader, but this is my first leadership position with the actual sort of director title in there. Um, and so for me, one of the goals that I have is to really sort of reinterpret what that means for my institution. So what kind of role do I want to have what do I want my reputation to be? And it's really important for me, even though I do have this director title to be as collaborative as I possibly can. So one of my goals is to, and I work at a space where a lot of my colleagues are highly collaborative. They're amazing. Um, I can always bother them if I need something, but I think to be able to create a team where my, our focus is collaboration I think is incredibly important. I think another goal that I have in my position is to 
kind of what we were talking about before, sort of using, it's almost like I'm trying to like very slyly use my background to prove that librarians can do anything. <laughs> do it. <laughs> I support like one that. One of my goals, like I'm sure they're sick of me because every time I'm like, well, I used to be a librarian and this is, you know, I'm sure they're like, Ashley, if you don't stop telling us about what you used to do. Um, but I think it is important for me to be constantly be like, this is my perspective and this is where my perspective is coming from my work as a librarian. I want people, like I said, to be sick and be like, okay, fine. We know that librarians do this. Okay. Stop talking about it. I want, I want to provide just a little bit more visibility in terms of what like my field, the people in my field, what we are capable of, um, but also how we can bring a different perspective, right? Because my undergraduate degree is in art and visual culture but the majority of my experience has been in libraries. And so what unique perspective can I bring to the table? Or what could other people with my similar background bring to the table in these conversations and to rethink, especially, I mean, this is a long shot, but also thinking about hiring practices. Like what can people, what are the sort of biases that people have? I mean, I had someone look at my resume and say, I don't know if she's qualified for this because all I see is library. And it's just sort of like, it. I, I'm telling you, I can do this, I swear. But I think if there's any, even if just a tiny bit of visibility in terms of, you know, if they're looking at applicant pools or if they're thinking about interns or if they're thinking about anything and they see library on someone's position, if there's anything that I can do in my current role for them to do sort of a double take for them to sort of consider, that's all that matters to me. So that's one of my big goals. It's lofty, but I'm trying. Mm -hmm. We speak the same language. That's why I'm doing this whole podcast because, you know, I'm one person. I, I can't do it myself. <laughs> I have to do this podcast and get the word out in a bigger way than, but it is educating one person at a time. Exactly. One person at a time. Um, what, prof uh, what professional associations are you in or which ones have you found most useful? Sure. So I'm actually a former ALA emerging leader. I was the class of 2018 mm -hmm. and that was a fabulous experience. Um, I know that ALA is a really complicated association um, that is uh, that's still sort of finding its footing at this particular moment. Um, and I'm actually still kind of associated with um, ACRL because I'm still um, one of the facilitators for the ACRL immersion literacy program. Um, that they have. So I'm still trying to keep one foot in the library land and, and so I don't leave completely. Um, but right now I'm actually a part of the American Historical Association. That's sort of my first um, sort of post leaving libraries. That's the first association that I've been a part of. And it's been really neat um, to be a part of an association that's, that is sort of rooted in academia, but also sort of have subsets and sort of public history and museums. And it's just a little more broader um, in terms of the type of folks that I get to meet uh, through this association. But, you know, with the job that I have, because um, a big part of being a part of association, right, is a networking aspect. That's a huge mm -hmm. benefit to being a part of an, uh, an association instead of the networking. Uh, and I've been really, really fortunate to get mentors through SAA. Um, like I said, ACRL and the ALA Emerging Leader Program. Um, but I'm at a good point in my career where I actually don't need it. Like I don't, well, I mean, I need it. You always need it. Um, but I don't need to go as hard as I used mm -hmm. to in terms of the networking. Um, 
And so I'm in a really good place where I'm not spending hundreds of dollars every year um, mm-hmm. to be a part of associations. So now you can be the mentor. Exactly. Exactly. That's where you're at in your career that you're you're sliding off on needing the mentoring and menting, and now you can yeah. turn that around and be the mentor. Yep, pay it forward. <laughs> That's right. So this is a big question, but what do you think the future of LIS education looks like? Now that's uh, uh, a really good question. So I used to, I've, I've taken a break, but I used to be an adjunct instructor at uh, Maryland's um, iSchool, which was, I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and I will say one of the things that I think is gonna be really hard for LIS educators moving forward is thinking about the justification of the price of graduate school with what mm-hmm. people actually make <laughs> once mm-hmm. they're done. And so I think LIS education, like you know, academia and other areas, really needs to think about um, career placement and thinking about encouraging library school students or at least helping them figure out careers um, that both have traditional library work that still sustain the profession, but also getting people to think a little more broadly about sort of where they want to go um, once they get the degree. Um, and then infusing that in the education, right? So what can you do with this degree? Where can you go? What are the conversations that you can be a part of? What can you help change in terms of, you know, anything, society, education, whatever? Um, how can you play a vital role um, in all of these things? And I think too, one of the things that I wish that I had been more prepared for when I was an LIS student was just digital everything just being Mm -hmm. prepared for not just understanding digital, but creating content, having the skills to develop content, Um, thinking about uh, the different partnerships that I would need to be able to make to be a part of of this digital realm. In my job at the Smithsonian, we're doing things with Wikipedia, we're doing things with, you know, creating animated videos, we're doing podcasts, we're doing all of these things. And so I really do hope that LAS education, I'm sure they already are, um, are really equipping students to be prepared for this kind of work um, once once they're done. So, but I do hope that the future of LAS education does not forget where we came from. And I don't mean like Dewey, because he's awful person. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think in terms of the core of the work, which is information, um, the core of the work, which is um, talking about the things in our society that help us be, that help us be better people and better citizens. I hope that doesn't leave um, LAS education. For me, that's a big part of why I became a librarian. So I felt like what I was doing was not necessarily a service, but it, it's important to remember how information plays a role in our society and how important it is as, as sort of stewards of that, um, what our roles are. Um, well, and I agree with you. I think there isn't, they need to add to a curriculum, but there isn't much to take away yeah. because if I'm, I have more experience in public libraries than academic libraries, but small and medium public libraries, they're still providing traditional library services. They aren't community centers. They're not saving the world. They're providing traditional library services. So we still need to be trained on that. We still can't lose that of basic academic library services, basic public library services, but we have to add data. 
leadership. We have to add things. So um, I did a, a webinar the other day with four library school deans, and they were talking about, you know, how they keep up with the changes. And it's so interesting how they all have different numbers of required courses. Some have one or two, some have six, okay. just depending, you know, do we leave cataloging off? Do we make it required? Do we not? Like how they decide what is the core course? Yeah. And it's not like they can't take it if it isn't required. It's just not required. But it was a really interesting discussion on, you know, how they keep up because things change so fast. Or how do you stay ahead? You don't really exactly. want to keep up. You want to stay ahead. But there's just because there are so many things we can do to keep, you know, preaching to the choir. There are so many things we can do that, you know, how do you design a curriculum when yeah. we have our skills are so transferable? And I think, too, you know, I I, I still have a. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends that are still in the profession, I think one of the things that we're constantly reminding each other is that learning doesn't end once you get your degree. So you you do what you can when you're, you know, in the mm -hmm. middle of it, but your learning doesn't end. And that's okay. Like, that's okay if you don't learn every single thing that you think you need to learn, because mm -hmm. that's just life, right? You're constantly learning, you're constantly growing and evolving. There are things that might work for you when you graduate that might not work for me five years down in your career because your career might change, your role might change. Um, and that's okay because learning still happens at any stage, right? And the LIS degree is just one thing of many things that you will need to do in order to be able to do well in your job, so. One of my professors would say, library school is an hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> like your career is the main course and i do think they need to have more in like managing budgeting and stuff but usually by the time you get to those roles i mean you're not going to remember or you're going to exactly. need a refresher or something so they need to cover it but i don't think it's as critical to like create managers out of library school exactly or create high level people out of library school because there's so much in between when you're starting out and you get those roles that you need to be on top of too it's an interesting exactly. time for libraries, for library education. Yeah. So why did you go to library school? And based on that, based on your career, does that reasoning still hold? So I was actually, it's funny, I was briefly in grad school for art and architectural history. And um, I needed a job. And of course, where do grad students work normally? The library. Um, <laughs> so I ended up working in the art library. And then I also ended up getting um, a summer internship with um, an African-American cultural heritage center. Uh, and I just remember being in the library and doing this internship. And I was just sort of like, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Like not talking about allegory and <laughs> 17th century <laughs> art. That's not really what I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to be doing this work. This work fits my personality. This work fits what I am interested in intellectually. Um, but also in terms of lifestyle, I think that's something that people also need to consider is, you know, what I liked about librarianship is that I could do scholarly work. I could talk to people about information. I could talk about history and archives, but I'm done at five o'clock. <laughs> I go home. <laughs> I don't have to think about, well, in certain, not in all cases, but like, I don't necessarily have to worry about certain things that I would as a professor. And I really liked that. I liked the fact that it was, that I could do all of these different things, but it was still nine to five. And that still holds for me too, as well, is that I get to do different things in my job and I get to be, 
you know, stimulate my curiosity and my intellectual interests, but I'm done at four o'clock. <laughs> right. I go and watch Columbo, right? That is what I do. Um, That's the beauty of a special library or working in a, using your skills outside of libraries. Exactly. Exactly. So I think those things still hold. I mean, I'm one of the reasons why I became a librarian is I was super passionate about history. I was super passionate about books and information and I loved it. And those things still hold true. I mean, we just produced a, um, a, a women's history guide for USA Today. And I made sure to have a, a mm -hmm. rare book in there because mm -hmm. I felt, I was like, we gotta have my rare books in there. We gotta have mm -hmm. them in there. Um, and so I think the passion that I had in you know 2010 when I decided to become a librarian still holds, still holds true now, 12 years later. It's just, I'm doing That's something great. a little bit different. So. And I'll put a link to that USA Today guide in the show mm -hmm. notes as well. That's really good too. Well, everyone should visit the National Portrait Gallery often. <laughs> yes! <laughs> often. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. It's been really interesting. Thank you for inviting me. This was a treat. Mm -hmm. Thank you to Ashley Corin for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. Thank you to everyone who has reached out to me to tell me they enjoy this podcast. I'm glad that so many people find this content useful. Thank you for following on social media and on my website. And thank you so much for listening.